Happy New Year, friends. It is the eighth day of Christmas. Who knows what the eighth day of Christmas brings? Eight maids of milking. I heard it. I heard it out there. That is my least favorite Christmas carol. I hate that song. But it does serve as a useful reminder that in, in the church's tradition, Christmas lasts for a full 12 days. We don't stop celebrating on the 25th of December. The feast goes on and on. And then there's all these little feasts that get sprinkled throughout the, the 12 days of Christmas. Uh, I don't know what eight, days, eight maids of milking has to do with the Feast of the Holy Name or the Feast of the Circumcision, which is, I don't milk. And I, anyway, I'm not going to go there. But <laughs> this is the eighth day of Christmas, January 1st, is always the Feast of the Circumcision. Very rarely do, does it fall on a Sunday, so we actually get to do it in church. But this is how the church has been celebrating the eighth day of Christmas for hundreds of years. It's a feast, the Holy Name of Jesus. I mean, we heard it in the readings, right? It's a, it's a feast day with a... I mean, a kind of a magical quality to it. Veneration of Jesus' holy name begins pretty early on in Christian history. And as the centuries go by, Jesus' name itself became, I mean, almost a kind of magical talisman. This especially happens in medieval Catholicism. You'll sometimes, you'll see the letters IHS inscribed on crucifixes and stained glass windows. That's Jesus' monogram, right? That's, a, that's an abbreviation of his name in Greek that is associated with this particular kind of devotion to the name itself. And we get echoes of that in Philippians, right? At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and the earth. There's a kind of uh, conquistadory quality to that kind of veneration. Um, but in the Middle Ages, monks and mystics taught that Jesus' name itself had a kind of healing quality and that meditating on it, almost as a kind of a mantra, purges your sin and kindles your heart. That's Richard Rolla, a 14th century mystic. A similar tradition arose in Eastern churches. They developed the Jesus prayer. Some of you know this. Some of you may pray this. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, as a mantra, right, over and over. That was a way of keeping the sacred name of Jesus on the lips and in the hearts of the faithful. Of course, it's worth remembering that the child's name was not Jesus at all, right? The word Jesus is a contemporary English rendering of a Greek translation of what was actually a very common first-century Palestinian Jewish boy's name. Yeshua is the, the Aramaic or, or the Hebrew name. So that's Joshua, right? Jesus' namesake in, in Hebrew tradition. Joshua is one of the great heroes of the faith. He's the one that marched around the walls of Jericho, right, seven times, or for seven days before they fell. He led the people into the promised land. So when Mary's boy gets this particular name, which comes directly out of his religious tradition, out of Jewish tradition, right? Joshua, Yeshua, means God saves. That's a name that is connecting Jesus to this great uh, Jewish story, right? This story about a people coming out of enslavement and into freedom. The child's very name connects him intimately to that act of liberation. You might say, his name tells you the whole story. All you need to know about this kid is in the name. The trajectory of his life is outlined for him before he ever draws his first breath. I mean, we've been hearing it now, this story, right, over the, over the past eight days. It's a miracle birth story with all the, all the cultural trappings of Roman and Hebrew folk mythology. There's divine messengers, there's great portents in the skies, miracles and magic. So it's no wonder that the very name Jesus began to develop kind of magical qualities. 
It's no wonder that Mary, the mother, Jesus, their, their sacred hearts, their sacred names became foci of devotion. I was, I was teaching a class a couple years ago, I think it was probably a decade or more ago, I was teaching a class here at Trinity, and I don't remember what text we were looking at, but it must have had something to do with this, you know, more woo-woo, more quasi-magical side of religion, because I had made some snarky, typically post-enlightenment, secularly-oriented remarks about the dangers of magical thinking in religion. And afterwards, a young woman who had trained as a scientist, I knew that about her, she came up to me after class and she thanked me and she said, you know, I really loved what you had to say about recontextualizing the magical parts of religion. Thanks you for, thank you for giving me some, some different ways to think about that. And then she paused and she kind of looked into my eyes a little more deeply and she said, Nathan, don't underestimate the magic parts. We all need a little bit of enchantment. That conversation happened, it happened a decade ago, and I, I'm, I may be putting words in her mouth, I don't remember the exact words, but that checked me, and that conversation has stuck with me. It's, it's changed how I, both how I think about, and then more to the point, how I teach the parts of the Bible and this tradition that seem to traffic in a lot of pre-scientific, magical folk thinking. I mean, there's a lot of enchantment in Christianity if we're willing to see it. A lot of it centers around Mary. I mean, some of you grew up Catholic, you know this, right? Mary, the mother, Jesus' mother, who as Luke so beautifully says, treasures up all these things and ponders them in her heart. I mean, no wonder the heart of this woman became a site for faithful devotion. Marian devotion begins actually very early in this tradition. A couple months ago, I started building this little prayer cabin. Some of you know about this. I, I built a pustinia over the summer. That's a Russian Orthodox name for a little prayer hut. It's in my parents' backyard up on Mount Hood. And I was thinking a lot about Mary. I was feeling kind of like her, her presence was already somehow at work in this little, you know, half acre of woods on the other side of Hackett Creek up on Mount Hood. So before the first day of work, a project that I knew would probably be the hardest thing I had ever done, before we ever broke ground on what would become my little, you know, nine by 13 structure, I got a little statue of the Virgin and Child. I got it from the grotto, because that's where you find these things in Portland. And I installed her. She's about, you know, three inches high. I installed her at the base of one of these huge Douglas fir trees that shelter this particular spot. And there's one tree in particular, I'm, 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 I call her the mother tree, I think she's the oldest tree in the grove, that felt like the right place to build this tiny little, I mean, what is that, half a foot Marian shrine. A mother tree is actually a, that's a scientific thing. You might have seen the, the forest ecologist Suzanne Simard's book, Finding the Mother Tree. Suzanne Simard is one of the scientists who have done pioneering research on the ways in which the trees in a mature forest talk to one another, right? The ways they share nutrients, information about predators. They use this vast network of mycorrhizal fungi. fungi. And Simard has shown that some trees, in particular, play a really significant role in maintaining forest health. She calls them mother trees, right? They're the, the biggest, the oldest tree in the forest. They carry genes from previous climates, sometimes hundreds of years in the, in the past. They serve as homes for an incredible diversity of creatures. They keep the water and the carbon flowing, both above and below ground. These mother trees actually, she says, serve to protect and to feed their offspring. They protect them, they nurture them, like a parent nurtures a child. Suzanne Simard says, forests act more like 
communities. They actually act like families more than individuals who are competing for scarce resources, which is the way that scientists have tended to think about the natural world, right? Survival of the fittest. And she says, no, actually, nature is much more interconnected than that. It starts to look, she says, the trees, you know, they're talking to each other, which starts to sound a little bit like magic. So I found my mother tree. I installed the Madonna at the foot of it. I asked her blessing on the ground and on the project that I was beginning, building this little grid, off the, off the grid lean-to, where I could go to work and pray and read. No phone signal, no electricity, no running water, no heat. I wanted the place to feel as much a part of the forest as the moss and the ferns. And I think she blessed it. This last summer, two friends of mine, two priests, who both happened to be mothers themselves, they came out to Mount Hood and they blessed the Pustinia. And my family was there. My mom gave me her blessing on that day. We lit candles, we walked around the building, we read a psalm, we threw holy water all over the thing, right? All the magic stuff. We blessed it. I mean, blessing is a word that conjures up that whole religious magic, the language of ritual and enchantment and hocus-pocus, mumbo-jumbo, the, the notion that there is more to water than hydrogen and oxygen atoms, that there is more to speech than sound waves that vibrate against your eardrum, that there is more to a forest than separate organic matter. The trees are talking to one another. I mean, truly, forests are enchanted, if you like which means that I think a forest can bless you, right? Or, or offer a kind, of, a kind of healing, a blessing. When I think about what, it, like, what is a blessing, it asks me to rethink, actually, a lot of what I think I know to be true about the way the world works. A blessing, whether it's prayers spoken or, or holy water thrown over a spot of ground or, or hands, holy hands laid on a head, a blessing asks me to think really carefully about materiality, and maybe even trust in a different kind of way. It asks me not to understand what's happening, but to experience it. I mean, what is blessing beyond kind of pious church talk for a quasi-magical formula that usually clergy pronounce over stuff? A formula, according to the theory, that you know, sets something apart, makes it a little bit different? But how do you know, right? How do you know if you've been blessed? What does that feel like? I mean, is there anything more to a blessing than this kind of outdated way of thinking about the magical power of words and formulas and to the point of the day, a sacred name? I mean, what power does the word Jesus even have? A priest might say, I bless you in the name of the Holy One. I bless you in the holy name of Jesus. A name that according to tradition has a kind of power to it. In the book of Numbers, from Hebrew Scripture, God says to Moses, this is how you're going to bless the people. You say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. God says, that's how you put my name on the people. I mean, that's more than words, right? Somehow a blessing is about, like, Letting God see you, 
catching a glimpse of the light of God's countenance. That is not about granting you magical wishes. That's not about success, a, a talisman to manipulate God's favor and get prosperity or health or money or whatever. I mean, that's, that's how capitalism thinks about blessing, right? How can I optimize my returns? What will this get me? Claim God's blessing. You hear preachers talk about this, right? They're called prosperity gospel preachers. Claim God's blessing. It usually involves sending them money, right? You will get something. This blessing has power. You can use it. But this older, I mean, I think much more ancient idea of blessing has nothing to do with granting you prosperity and success and a healthy new year. It's about being in physical proximity to a, I mean, to a kind of holy healing. A blessing is about being seen. Blessings are for deliverance. A blessing, I think, is meant to set you free. So what does it mean, then, to be blessed in this particular name, the holy name of Jesus? What about that name, you know, connected to the, the great freedom fighters, the great prophets of Hebrew tradition, a name that is connected to healing and deliverance, a name that in this tradition belongs to the son of a penniless refugee, a child who was raised in poverty and executed by the police as an enemy of the state. What about that name has the power to heal me? Is there any magic left in that thing? Or have I outgrown my ability to be re-enchanted by a name, by the power of Jesus who is called the Christ? Hamlet says to Horatio in Shakespeare's play, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy which I think is another way of saying what my friend tried to teach me 10 years ago. Don't underestimate the magic. Don't get in your head about religious superstition and mumbo-jumbo. You can, you, know, you can pull this thing apart. You can understand the, the history, the etymology. You can rinse the whole Christmas story of its angelic messengers and miracle births. But the longing remains, I think. Beyond the desert of criticism, Paul Ricoeur wrote, beyond the desert of criticism, we long to be called again. I think we want to hear that voice, right? To feel that blessing, to, to claim the healing in this name, this blessing, the sacred space that is held out for us, even when we've stopped believing it, even when it has hurt us, right? Even still, I think many of us long to feel the magic. I mean, maybe that's part of the healing that this name offers to every disappointed skeptic and betrayed believer, everybody who's ever been hurt by a church, or more particularly, hurt by a Christian acting in the name of Jesus. I think about where that name has shown up in our world over the past couple years, the actions that have been committed in the name of Jesus. Whew. I shudder sometimes at the way that name gets used. I mean, it starts to walk me pretty dang close to blasphemy and wanting to think about what it means to blaspheme misuse that name. Some of us sitting in this room are refugees from the way that name has been wielded by Christ's followers. And still, don't we? We long for it to find us as a blessing, as a, as a balm for a wounded body, as salve for, us, for a savaged soul. Shakespeare said, there's nothing magic about a name. That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Well, maybe. 
Or maybe the name of the thing matters in a way that we can't quite understand, but can learn to trust like we trust walking into a forest. We can't hear the conversation the trees are having, but I think we can feel it sometimes. I mean, maybe the magic still works. Maybe the blessing matters. Maybe after a, a lifetime of disappointing Christmases, there is still a tiny little bit of enchantment left.